evening. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Michael Green. I'm the, the CEO of the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Um, we're gathered here today, as many of you know, on the lands of the Ngunnawal people. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. One of our speakers, Rob uh, Atkinson, and I are both from Bethesda, Maryland, just north of Washington, D.C., um, which until English settlers arrived in the early, early 1600s was uh, the land of the Pitskawea and Akahanak people. And often when Americans hear the acknowledgement of country, they come away and say, we should, we should be doing that <laughs> in the United States. And it's sort of in that spirit that we're delighted today to have Rob Atkinson uh, from Washington here uh, together with other distinguished speakers to talk about technology competition, emerging technology policy, where the United States and Australia are aligned, uh, which is most uh, areas, and where we're not, which is in some surprising areas. Um, we at the U.S. Studies Center have uh, started an emerging technology program um, to try to look for policy solutions uh, that bring together stakeholders from universities, from big tech in the private sector, from banks, from government, from the national security space. Um, Mia Hammond-Airy, who runs the program, is um, leading a series of uh, dialogues and initiatives to try to draw on the expertise across different sectors because new technologies like GPT-4, which OpenAI just released, uh, quantum, big data, biotech, um, hypersonics, these are all creating uh, all of government, all of society, all of alliance uh, questions about literacy, innovation, um, export controls, ethics, um, national security, privacy. Um, there are issues that require, as I said, um, not just governments but all of society and um, closely aligned um, countries like the United States, Australia, Japan, and others. So it's in that spirit we're having this discussion tonight. Um, Dr. Rob Atkinson is at the U.S. Studies Center this week as a visiting fellow. He's the president and founder of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation based in Washington, D.C. When I was at the Center for Strategic and International Studies before coming here in August, I did quite a bit of work with Rob and his team. They are the preeminent uh, technology policy think tank in Washington. Um, there's a lot of heat and a lot of noise about technology policy issues, and Rob's team always adds clarity backed by data, often um, grabbed by Congress on a bipartisan basis to formulate legislation like the CHIPS and Science Act. Um, we're delighted uh, that Rob is here. Um, we had excellent discussions in Sydney, and today in Canberra, we're whisking him back to Sydney uh, tomorrow morning. Um, and joining Rob is, I understand, a friend of uh, decades, <laughs> um, the Honorable Dr. Andrew Lee, Member of Parliament. He's the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities, and Treasury. Uh, he worked in government for more than a decade in various shadow ministry positions. He was the Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister in 2000. 13, he has a PhD from Harvard, and he's written numerous books on innovation, economics, inequality, and Australian politics, including one I just saw in Japanese, but I assume that's a translation you didn't, despite your accomplished CV, did not actually write it in Japanese. Um, uh, and then uh, moderating the discussion is our own Dr. Mia Hammond-Airy. She's the director of our Emerging Technology Program. She has extensive experience in technology, um, national security, and intelligence. Uh, with more than 15 years leading tactical, operational, and strategic activities for the Australian government. Um, she's an expert on emerging trends, um, advices on complex challenges and national security threats, and particularly emerging tech. Her PhD at ANU focused on big data and its impact on national security and intelligence. 
So I'm going to turn it over to Mia. We'll have a discussion among our distinguished panelists. Um, then we'll open it up for your questions. I'll come back and do a short benediction at the end, and then we'll have drinks um, so you can uh, uh, talk more about the subject. So thank you very much. And Mia, over to you. states attempt to understand, innovate, and regulate the digital economy, let alone emerging technologies, we see an incredibly busy tech policy landscape in Australia and the US, as well as globally. The conversations span cybersecurity, recent strategies in the US and Australia released uh, just last this, in the last uh, month, sorry, are examples of this, but also privacy, e-safety, data, antitrust or competitiveness, uh, domestic competitiveness for the economics <laughs> people in the room, um, as well as decoupling and national security concerns. And it can be really confusing for policymakers and consumers uh, to differentiate and understand this discussion because it spans consumer goods, critical infrastructure, emerging technologies, defence technologies, as Mike just mentioned, as well as digital and internet policy. It's really rare to get two insightful and influential voices at this, of this caliber in the same room, willing to talk about such significant and um, big challenges. So you're in for a treat tonight. Um, as Mike said, I'll moderate a short, well, a, a, a discussion, and then you'll have um, some substantial time for questions. So start thinking. Um, these two have collectively written so many books that when I tried to research this, I actually lost count. <laughs> so we'll just say many, many books between them. Um, but you've both published a book a year apart with the same publisher, who I am hoping to get as a sponsor. I'll switch my book, book report. Um, I'd like to ask you if you could offer some insights uh, into each of your book. I'll, I'll give the, a short overview. Um, Rob, your 2019 book uh, with Michael Lind is called Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. Can you give us an overview of the book and some key insights for our audience? Mike, it's really a pleasure to be here. Um, my main impression of Australia, particularly after I went in the capital today, is, boy, people are so nice. It's unbelievable. The guards were super nice to me. This is coming from a Canadian. Well, yeah, but I live in the U.S. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so Mike and I wrote this book because there is an emerging narrative in the U.S. Um, that small businesses are really, really good and every, everything, you know, motherhood, apple pie, sainthood, small, big, bad. We don't want to, you know, big companies are inherently bad. So what we did in the book is we just said, what's the evidence show about firm size and social benefit? And what we found was that virtually on, on every single indicator you could find, um, <clears throat> diversity, wages, productivity, R&D, 
exporting, cybersecurity, um, environmental protection, uh, social investment. Big companies, on average, not every big company, but on average, were better than small companies. And what our message was, was not, well, let's discriminate against small companies. It was to say we should have size neutrality. In the US, for example, it's legal for a small company of under 15 people to discriminate on the basis of race. Why would we allow that? Why would we allow that? Uh, if you're a small company, you pay fewer taxes than you do if you're a large company. So our whole point of the book was we should have what we called size neutrality. If you're going to have a rule, it should apply to all companies. If you're going to favor certain companies, you shouldn't favor based on size. Um, that's all it was. And it wasn't saying, by the way, that some companies could become too big or that there aren't potential issues in antitrust, particularly around conduct. But what we were saying is that large companies, particularly in the U.S. where we looked, but this, by the way, this data were true. The data were true in every country we looked at, Europe, Japan, Korea, the same dynamic is average productivity per worker goes up linearly by the size of the firm. So that's not to say, oh, small businesses have no role, they're, they're bad, but it is to say we shouldn't have favoritism. So in France, my last point, in France, they have a law, they have, they have a set of laws that says when you hit 50 employees, uh, the government's coming for you, essentially. Just, you know, inter new taxes, new regulations, this and this and this. And so these LSE economists did a study and they found that there is a large preponderance of firms in France that have 49 employees, <laughs> as you would expect. So that's really what the book was about. Excellent, thank you. Andrew, your 2020 book uh, with Josh Gans called Innovation and Inequality is a look at the two concepts in the US. Um, can you offer an overview and share how this might apply in Australia? Well, thanks very much, Mayor, and can I too acknowledge the Ngunnawal people in whose lands we're meeting today and, and say what a hoot it is to have the US Studies Centre put me on the stage with Rob Atkinson. Uh, I first knew, got to know Rob in the summer of 2001 when uh, I was working at the Progressive Policy Institute along with Lisa Middlebrook, who's here in the audience as well. Uh, and uh, Rob very generously uh, had me on as a co-author for a report on uh, digital, uh, digital governments and uh, uh, a report on the digital divide in which we uh, talked about the uh, growth of broadband and uh, made a set of projections which completely fell apart once mobile internet came in. Uh, and that further proof, if any were needed, uh, that economists should stay out of the forecasting game. Uh, but Rob is an extraordinary thinker and an icon iconoclastic one and somebody who is extremely ready to work with unusual collaborators. So, uh, so Rob, thank you for uh, collaborating with me then and uh, it's a, a pleasure my, to collaborate pleasure. now. And Andrew's being modest because that report that he wrote was actually very influential in shaping uh, US uh, e-government policy, particularly in Congress. So. Well, it's uh, exciting to hear. Um, so, the, uh, the, going back to your question there, Mayor, innovation plus equality, uh, which I uh, uh, have just for, uh, for Mike's sake in its Japanese edition, uh, was, uh, was a book which Joshua and I wrote to try and address the idea that everything has to be a trade-off between growth and equity, that there's this so-called equity efficiency trade-off. And we wanted to point to a, a host of areas in which actually we can have faster growth and less, uh, less inequality. Uh, for example, we point to the importance of getting superstar teachers in front of uh, students in disadvantaged areas. 
uh, and the benefits that that can uh, accrue are massive in terms of lifetime earnings. Uh, indeed, if you look at the best research on the benefits of great teachers, it suggests that uh, if you value a teacher in terms of the lifetime earnings boost they can deliver, they are literally worth their weight in solid gold. Uh, we look too at the way in which uh, entrepreneurial experience can sometimes not be evenly shared across a population and that by providing access uh, of, to mentors and money, uh, we can ensure that we find more of those lost Einsteins and lost Murray Curies, uh, young people who have a brilliant idea but just can't implement it for lack of the systems that allow them to, uh, to become innovators. Uh, and we focus too on the way in which uh, laws can impede people from uh, engaging in startups. Uh, I've just uh, finished Chris Miller's terrific book, Chip Wars, uh, which talks about the way in which the so-called traitorous eight uh, set up Fairbank Semiconductor in Silicon Valley uh, and managed to kickstart the Valley's entrepreneurial culture. They could do it because in California, non-compete agreements are unenforceable, uh, which allows people to leave their current firm and start up a, a new business with a new company. But right now, a fifth of American workers are covered by non-compete agreements, uh, including uh, gardeners, early childcare workers, uh, and a whole range of people in frontline occupations. Uh, we think that a whole lot more innovation could be unlocked if non-compete agreements in the United States were not enforced in the way in which they are. So that gives you a, a little taste of what we're trying to do with innovation plus equality. Thank you. Um, one of the policy suggestions from the book uh, focuses on independent workers in what we might call the shared or gig economies. Can you explain the new relationships between customers, platforms and providers um, and what your uh, proposal in, the, in that book outlined and then bring its applicability to the Australian employment market. And Rob, I would welcome your thoughts coming after that as well. Yeah, the uh, gig economy has been terrific for consumers, but not always great for workers. Uh, we saw in Australia a very short period in which uh, a handful of delivery drivers were killed on the job. Uh, and the risk that for some of those drivers, they didn't get access to the sort, their families didn't get access uh, to the sort of compensation that they would have been entitled to uh, if that uh, worker had been injured in a regular job. Uh, so part of this arises because we only have two categories in employment law. You're either an independent contractor or you're an employee. And employment law hasn't really kept up with the situation of a uh, worker who is uh, being told the circumstances in which they'll work, the earnings that they will get if they work, uh, but is not mandated to put in a particular number of hours. Uh, think classically of delivery drivers, Uber drivers and the like. Uh, so we talk in the US context about ways in which you might broaden the categories of employment to have something called an independent worker. Uh, in Australia, Tony Burke's currently looking at uh, the protections that are provided in the gig economy uh, and it's, it's a similar challenge here. Uh, we see the, the huge benefits of the gig economy for consumers uh, but we don't think that that should give you a leave pass from looking after the workers that are providing those services. Um, Rob, obviously the, the employment situation in, in Australia is different in terms of healthcare relationships with employers, but do you have any insights from your research in the US? 
Well, I think Andrew and I are going to agree on a lot of things and maybe disagree on, on some of the smaller things. So we also at ITIF, we proposed a third category. One of the problems with the first category where like when, the, when you've done surveys of, of Uber drivers or when they've seen referendum, they overwhelmingly do not want to be treated as regular full-time employees. They want the flexibility. I mean, I've been, I had an Uber driver, a young black woman who was getting her PhD, and she said, oh, I just can't focus on my PhD 40 hours a week. I need a little break, and I need to pick up some money. I had another guy who was, um, he and his wife, and she, he was starting up a ministry. This is a big thing in the U.S., you know, independent ministry. But he needed to make some money on the side. So I think that flexible model is a really important one, and we should respect that a lot of workers want that. One of the problems by putting this category of yes, no, is if companies in, again, I'm not speaking for Australia, which I don't know anything about, but in the U.S., if you wanted to start giving that, that uh, independent contractor a little bit more benefits, like, you know, I'm going to help you with, with uh, retirement or I'm going to help you with a training program, you, you started automatically get locked into the full board and then you got to do everything. And so the companies are incented to not do anything. And I think what you want is you want this, as Andrew and I know from the old deal, uh, new, new Labor, uh, New Democrat days, you want the third way, uh, the third way of being able to encourage companies, and in some cases maybe mandate them to do certain things for the workers, but not take that whole category of full-time labor, which has its own restrictions and category, um, in things. So. Small to medium-sized businesses are often described as, as in Australia as the lifeblood of our economy, and they represent the vast majority of businesses, upwards of 95%. Rob, can you describe from your experiences in the US, and particularly in relation to the size neutrality concept you outlined earlier, um, what some of the opportunities and risks are from an innovation perspective? Well, first of all, is to say small business is the lifeblood of Australia, is like, like, it kind of, yeah, you're going to have businesses. So it's not like small businesses are the lifeblood. It's just you have a bunch of businesses. And, and the fact that, and I'm not saying this is true, but if it were the case that you have policies that are helping companies to stay small or helping smaller companies at the expense of larger companies, you're distorting what would be an optimal firm size mix. And there's going to be no economy that should have, but by the way, if you, guess which countries have the highest rate of small businesses? They're the countries that have the lowest per capita income, like countries in Africa and all the micro business. They just they have no money because they can't get scale. So I think what you want is you want to have that mix be set by sort of just how industry structures work. Some industries are going to be bigger than others. But on the innovation point, it's important to understand that and this is good University of Chicago research on this by Chad Syverson. Most small companies don't want to become big companies. They're, they're lifestyle companies. You know, guy runs it with his wife or vice versa. They employ a few people and they're happy, which is fine. I'm a lifestyle entrepreneur. ITIF has 30 people. I have no desire to be Brookings. Uh, I don't want to grow to be a big think tank. It's like, why would I want to do that? I'm enjoying my smallness. But from a public policy perspective, what you really want are you want those what are called gazelles. You want companies that start small and end up with 1,000 workers or 5,000 workers and become global players in, the, in, in Australia. And so I think that's really the key is not so much small but age. So one of the things we proposed with 
we never thought it was going to happen, but we proposed it, was get rid of the Small Business Administration in the U.S. and create and, and replace it with the NBA, not the SBA, the NBA. Not the National Basketball Association, but the New Business Administration. And the goal should be, in my view, much more about helping new businesses get off the ground. And so we'd be arguing, hey, five-year exemption from, from regulations or things like that give you a safe space to get off the ground. But once you're off the ground, why would we exempt you from racial restrictions or you know things like that so i really think the key in this small business large business thing is much more about how do you get high growth small companies that that want to continue to grow um, you know it's amazing in japan uh, uh, interesting story in uh, oh sorry I think, I think it was korea sorry in, you go over 10 years period they had less than 500 companies grow from small to mid-size 500 in California, we have like 500 a minute, you know? So that's really the key, is getting small companies to become at least mid-sized companies. And do you have any, any I guess, policy levers that you've seen to successfully grow those companies from small to medium size? Yeah, I mean, I think there are lots of areas where US policy is suboptimal, but one policy I think that's quite good is to, we have a rich ecosystem of, you know, venture capital, and it's not just venture capital giving money, it's venture capital giving guidance and, and networking and linkage. We have a, this, what's called the SBIR program, Small Business Innovation Research Program. That was actually how, if you know the company Qualcomm, uh, wireless uh, chip, they were funded by SBIR. Um, so we have state governments like you do that have very active programs to help small companies. We have a really top-notch system of universities, public and private, that do a great job of helping small companies get off the ground. I mean, if you go to MIT, for example, look at MIT. MIT has created, if you look at the companies that spun out of MIT and look at their total revenue, it would be the 12th largest country in the world. So you can create ecosystems that make that easier. Uh, and I know you're all looking at that here in Australia and you've done some of those things, but I think that's really what we should be thinking about. Do you have anything you'd like to add on that? Well, I think uh, Rob's point about focusing on new businesses is, is really important. You certainly don't want policies that encourage bonsai businesses, that, uh, that encourage firms to uh, forego growth opportunities, which would be good for productivity and, and good for their workers as well. Uh, so the focus on new business is important. Uh, the OECD, a lot of the OECD research is, uh, is pointing to this as a, as a key priority. Uh, and in that sense, you know, I'm interested in both the formal government structures, whether there's more that we can do as a government to encourage uh, start-up innovation, and also what the uh, governance and venture capital ecosystem looks like. Uh, you had this notion for a while in Silicon Valley uh, that uh, the, the going public was, was too much of a hassle. Uh, and so you saw for a while the growth of unicorns, uh, a lot of startup funding going to allow firms to stay private and to avoid all that excess uh, regulation, red tape reporting uh, that can hamper a brilliant founder as they're, they're aiming to start up a company. Uh, and then out of the, that ecosystem, you saw emerge 
uh, WeWork uh, and Uber under Travis Kalanick uh, and uh, a range of companies where the, the lack of discipline from the, uh, from the public markets really did become a problem. And so now things have swung back a little and there's more of a re recognition that uh, there is actually a, a discipline that comes through an IPO and through getting, getting public money in that sense. So we're very alive to that discussion and to the notion that where you get your money from can shape your growth trajectory but also ensure that, that firms are behaving in the, in the way in which they need to as they uh, graduate into mature organisations. Yeah, one other point I think is important to understand, at least in the U.S. ecosystem, is because of Sarbanes-Oakley, it was a little bit harder to go public. So one avenue that a lot of entrepreneurs bet on and hope for when they're taking big risks to start a company is acquisition. And uh, my son's 30-year-old kid in Silicon Valley, I'm hoping that's what happens because he has some stock options. So I'm like, yeah. But, uh, and I had to loan him money for it, like ridiculous. But anyway, um, I think we shouldn't underestimate that because in the US the narrative is somehow that we shouldn't really allow acquisitions. But acquisitions in the US actually can really drive innovation because they provide another exit. And sometimes, and if you're putting money into this, a lot of times what you're looking for is can I get a good exit? Sometimes it's an IPO, sometimes it's just growth and you don't need an exit, but sometimes it is acquisition. And I think all three can play an important role. I want to just draw on uh, one thread before quickly looking at inequality and then getting to the tech policy hot topics. Um, one of the policy suggestions from your book, Andrew, is about building innovation training for everyone and, and kind of drawing out what Rob was saying there about the ecosystem of innovation. Where is Australia at now uh, and can we improve and if so, how? Yeah, I think we can definitely improve. Uh, you, you look at uh, a range of the uh, innovation uh, precincts, uh, most cities have them, uh, and there's a lot of variation in terms of how well they create environments in which uh, innovators are able to learn from one another uh, and get the benefits of co-location. I'm interested in some of the uh, innovative models, uh, so University of Technology Sydney has an aim to provide a start-up experience to half of its students. So the idea here, Mayor, isn't just that uh, the engineering students will start up a business, uh, but that the nursing students and the education students and the communications students will also have their own chance to build a start-up. Uh, that democratisation of start-up experiences is pretty exciting to me and I think has, uh, has a lot of potential. Uh, Australian venture capital returns over the last couple of decades have underperformed the stock market as a whole. Uh, so one of the questions that you then ask is, well, how do we encourage investors uh, in to, to partner better uh, with, uh, with firms that have more growth potential? Is it something about the way in which investors in a Silicon Valley context are able not just to provide cash but also to effectively link up their firms uh, with uh, a better ecosystem. Uh, Joshua Ganz's Creative Destruction Lab at the University of Toronto has spun out of it a whole wide range of successful firms and he puts that down to the way in which they're able to link up in the same room uh, successful entrepreneurs and budding entrepreneurs, uh, build those partnerships uh, and encourage uh, the, the meeting of that uh, raw energy and intellectual heft uh, with judgment and wisdom from the more established uh, business uh, people in the room.
thank you. Um, you've both talked about innovation, but also inequality. Um, I sense you may have different meanings or term focuses for your discussion on inequality, but where do you see the tensions lie and what can we do to reduce innovation inequality? Uh, well, to reduce inequality, I think one of the things in the United States that's proven very successful is the earned income tax credit. Uh, topping up the wages of low-wage workers in, uh, who, who, in families with kids, uh, which provides direct uh, cash injection to low-income households while encouraging work. Uh, all of the evaluations I've seen of the earned income tax credit suggest it has a big positive impact on labour supply, uh, but also on the household, household well-being. And the proposals to extend that through to childless adults uh, make a lot of sense to me. Uh, the expansion of the EITC has been on sort of Democrats' wish list for many years, uh, but the, uh, the, we haven't seen an expansion of the kind that Bill Clinton was able to pull off in 1996, which had a, a massive effect in uh, pulling low-income Americans out of poverty. Did you want to add anything before we get to hot topics? What's so, your favourite inequality busting policy? Uh, Raising taxes on the rich and um, basically getting rid of hedge funds uh, managers who make $100 billion a year. There was, I'm a little confused, but there was actually a very good study done a few years ago that looked at the uh, top 15 hedge fund managers in the U.S. They made more than the top 500 CEOs made. So when everybody, I think CEO compensation is, is too high, don't get me wrong. But if you really want to look at inequality in the U.S., you have to look at the financial sector. They have doubled in size, and I would argue probably not very much of a net benefit. I mean, I love venture capital. I love certain banks. But we've financialized the U.S. economy in, in, in very dramatic ways, and the returns have been massive. And so just that sector alone, you know, just make them pay a boatload of taxes and, and definancialize it. I support the earned income tax credit, but I would actually much rather have a higher minimum wage. Um, the, one of the advantages of a minimum wage, first of all, we haven't raised our minimum wage in the U.S. in a long, long time, so because of inflation, it's going down. One of the advantages of the minimum wage, I wrote a piece for a democracy journal, if you're Mike Tomaski's thing, and it was called uh, Minimum Wage Maximum Growth. And the argument I made is that companies in the U.S., if you look at other countries that have, that have sort of higher enforced minimum wages, they focus much more on what you could call high-performance work organizations. They use more technology. They train their workers more because they have to figure out a way to address these high costs. The U.S. has essentially this easy way out. You get low wages. It's topped off by the government through the EITC. And so you can basically be lazy and not automate, not use technology. And that's one of the reasons why U.S. productivity has not gone up as much. And there's pretty good evidence of that. So I'm not saying we should get rid of the EITC, Andrew, but I think, I think it should be complemented by a robust minimum wage. At least in the U.S., I think it's $7.50 an hour. It should be $12 an hour minimum and then in indexed to inflation. Um, you know, it's funny because when Trump tried to appoint a secretary of labor who had been a fast food entrepreneur, I can't remember the guy's name, he said, you know, if you raise the minimum wage, you Democrats, uh, we're going to be forced to automate. I'm like, cool. Cool. That'd be cool. Like, you want to work in a fast food restaurant? Because I don't think most people do because they make terrible wages. So 
that's the other thing maybe we can get into is sort of how much does automation benefit workers. But, um, you know, if you, look at, if you look at Australian productivity, I was just reading the Australian Productivity Commission report, it's pretty bad. And, and the U.S. is pretty bad. I mean, our, we, we have not raised productivity. And that is, to me, it's equally, if you want to raise standards of living for the bottom half, productivity growth is at the same level of importance as sort of more fairness and distribution and opportunity policy. So I don't think we can, to me, that's why I love the minimum wage is it's a double hit. You know, you get, you get opportunity and you get uh, growth out of it. Yeah, and certainly the, I think it's Dan Hemmermesh who makes the point that if you go to Europe, you're much more likely to see a waiter using an electronic ordering system yeah. than you are in the US, yeah. where there's much more, labor is cheaper, and yeah. so the, the labor capital ratio is, uh, is higher. Exactly. Uh, and Alison Booth has some nice stuff on monopsony power, suggesting that if you want to encourage investment in training, uh, then, uh, then higher minimum wages can have that effect. So yeah. strongly supportive of that one too. You've both touched on automation. I wanted to ask you about AI. Um, as you know, last night, OpenAI released GPT-4 with a number of improvements on the earlier version. Um, for many people in society, ChatGPT has become the first touch point they've really had with AI. Um, what are your thoughts on the technology? Um, not specifically GPT, but broader AI. Uh, where do you think it will go? And to your point, Rob, where do you see this shifting productivity? I'll, I'll dive in first, if you like, and then uh, Rob can give you the, uh, the more considered answer. Uh, uh, it's going to be augmenting a huge number of jobs. You know, I was just looking at Cade Metz's piece in the uh, New York Times, which is worth a read because he identifies how ChatGPT 4 improves on 3.5. Uh, can do things like uh, you upload a picture of a fridge and say, what do you suggest I cook tonight? Uh, and I the AI recognises the items in the fridge and suggests a couple of different uh, uh, ideas for, uh, for dinner. Uh, and the, its ability to, for example, summarise text in a pithy way uh, or to take a summary and identify ways in which that summary is flawed. It can now do very well uh, in uh, most standardised tests, um, SAT, uh, bar exams and the like. Uh, so it's going to augment a whole lot of jobs we do and how do we assist people working with AI is going to be uh, a major policy challenge. Uh, I, we suggest in Innovation Plus Equality uh, that better connecting MOOCs through to the formal training system may be a useful way of advancing uh, and that uh, training people to continue to learn Will, be an uh, will mark out the countries which are best able to use AI. This whole idea that you get a block of education at the start of your career and then you just spend down that investment over the course of the next 50 years, uh, there's no way that can work in a, an environment in which technology is rapidly advancing. Uh, we want to be able to link up MOOCs and formal education uh, and encourage workers to continue to acquire skills and so the, next wo the workers of the future are saying, here's how I can use ChatGPT4 uh, to be far more productive. Uh, and in the way Rob highlighted a moment ago with the minimum wage, to therefore earn a higher wage. Yeah, I think there's, you know, we did a study a few years ago where we were able to get a data set that University of Wisconsin had curated, which was from the U US Bureau of Labor Statistics. And we keep track of like, 
you know, I think it's 500 occupations or something, 600. And so we had occupational data of the number of jobs for every decade from 1870, so 1870, 80, 90, all the way to 2010 and then 2015. And we said, what, was, what decades had the most absolute value changes, so either growth or contraction of occupations? Uh, it was 1890s. And so uh, the biggest, 1890s and the next, the biggest sort of disruptive technology in the US economy history was the tractor. By far, just by far. Um, then the 1950s was another big one. It, it was basically there were all these people who were women, you know, largely doing. Uh, uh, what number can I connect you to? Those jobs went away. There were also large numbers, mostly women. Oh, you would like that file? Let me go to the file cabinet and file it for you or get it for you. So. This idea that we're in this phase of sort of massive occupational restructuring just hasn't been borne out. If you look at the most, if you, again, going back to 1995 using BLS data, 2000 and the year before COVID, so you can't use COVID, so 2019 or 18 was the lowest rate of occupational disruption we've had since 1995 when we started collecting that data. In other words, you losing your job through no fault of your own, the lowest rate. Uh, and the lowest rates by decades were the 90s, 2000s. So I think this is way over-exaggerated. And, and to be clear, I don't think, at least in the US, we have a terrible system of helping good workers make transition. So this is not an, a thing to say we shouldn't have way better policy. I mean, if you want to look at the best country in the world, it's Singapore, in my opinion. They have a totally comprehensive, totally technology-advanced program to help workers make transitions. We should adopt that program in the US. But I don't think we should be worried all that much about massive unemployment. Andrew mentioned uh, complementarity or augmentation. I think one of the big debates in the US are there are people in the US who say we should only support technology that augments worker skills but doesn't replace them. I completely disagree with that. Uh, if you look at the National Science Foundation Robotics Initiative, it only funds researchers who are looking at augmentation robotics, not replacement robotics. Now imagine back in the, in the 1930s when Brunswick, the, the, uh, the, the bowling ball company, you know, if they said, you know what, we're not gonna make these bowling ball setter things that come down and pick up all the pins, we're gonna have better technology so the ball boys know how to put the pins together faster. No, we just said, you know what, that's a really terrible job doing a, being a ball boy on a bowling alley. We're gonna automate the thing. And I think if we wanna raise productivity, my goal in the US is, you know, you know what our median, I mean, I don't know, it's your, ours is higher than yours, but our median income is $60,000 a year. I don't know how anybody lives on $60,000 a year. I don't wanna sound obnoxious, or, but I live in DC. You can't live on $60,000 a year unless you wanna live in an apartment. But if you have a family, you can't do it. I'd like to see that to be $150,000 a year. I'd like that to be the median. And the only way you're gonna do that is a lot of automation. And so I think it's dangerous to, think that we shouldn't embrace automation. Now, is it gonna hurt workers? Yes, in, it, there will be workers hurt. I totally get that. That's why I think we should have income support, training support, but I think we can't sort of say, well, we don't wanna hurt any workers, so we can't embrace automation and productivity. And this is, of course, something that comes up all the time. And I'm not a politician, by the way, so I can say that. Yeah, well, but this is something that comes up all the time with trade, right? So the, uh, the argument is always, yeah. should we hold back trade uh, if it's going to adversely affect some workers, although it's going to be beneficial to society as a whole? 
and generally economists' answer on trade as it is in technology is let's take that increase in aggregate well, uh, economic output and redistribute it in a way in which everybody can be better off. Uh, it's harder to do in practice than it sounds in theory, but surely it's got to be the right answer if you want to have a race to the top. You've both spoken, uh, not so much tonight actually, but in various other forums on, on antitrust and domestic competitiveness. Um, Andrew, can you outline some of the major developments from the digital platform inquiry? Yeah, so the work that the Australian Competition Consumer Commission has been doing is looking at uh, some of the uh, ways in which digital platforms have attained dominant positions in the market. Uh, so just take a typical morning, you might uh, wake up, check your, uh, pick up your iPhone, use it to uh, check your, uh, your Facebook feed to see what your friends are, friends are up to, uh, and then go on Instagram to check out your favourite celebrities. Uh, and then just before you uh, head into, uh, into work for the day, uh, you might have a look at uh, Google weather to work out whether it's going to rain today. Well, in just those four interactions, picking up an Apple phone, using Facebook, using Instagram, uh, and using Google search, uh, you've engaged with uh, technologies which didn't exist 20 years ago when Rob and I uh, co-authored our reports, uh, and which now have majority market share. Uh, and that majority market share means that those firms are potentially able to use their market power uh, in ways that are problematic for the economy as a whole. Uh, you look, for example, at the way in which uh, Amazon deployed $200 million in the space of a month to wipe out diapers.com, an upstart that was uh, threatening a part of its, its business. Uh, some of the challenges that uh, our app developers face as they're looking at paying 30% uh, of their revenues to Apple in order to do any in-app purchases. Uh, and the uh, data challenges that uh, emerged around uh, Facebook and the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, owed their, uh, uh, had their genesis in part in the highly dominant role that, uh, that fa Facebook played. Uh, so we're looking at uh, platform-specific regulation, uh, whether it would be appropriate, as we do in the national security context, to designate certain platforms as being particularly significant and therefore tailoring rules around those, as well as whether it would be appropriate to have uh, a, a ban on unfair trading practices, uh, which went right across the economy to, to tech and to non-tech firms alike. Uh, but we're consulting on those and very happy to, uh, to engage with the, the thoughts of those in the room, as, as well as more broadly the, the competition, consume, uh, competition and consumer uh, lobby groups. I sense, Rob, you might have some different perspectives on this. Yeah, I'm so happy because Andrew and I were agreeing way too much. Yes. So, uh, so I have to say, there, here I would respectfully have a different view. Um, in the Obama White House, um, the National Economic Council came out with a very good report on competition in, in, in essentially the platform economy, the internet economy. And they said something, which I'm going to paraphrase, which was, when you have network-based industries, markets tend to concentrate to one or two players. And what is a network-based industry? So this is not a network-based industry. It's like a pen, okay? But uh, Facebook is a network-based industry because the more people on Facebook, the more valuable it is to the user. And so it, de 
imagine, I wrote this in our book, which is all I have to say. Imagine that you have now, Andrew has succeeded, or Austin has succeeded, break up Facebook, and I know you're not talking about breakup, but let's just say hypothetical. And now we have Facebook and we have Headbook. And every time you want to post a picture of your kid's birthday party, you have to post it to Headbook and to Facebook. Well, there's a reason why you have Facebook. It's because nobody wants to do that. It's just way too much hassle. Why is there really only one sort of micro-blogging thing called Twitter? Because I don't want to have to tweet on three different platforms. So what you had is specialization. You have LinkedIn, which is sort of a professionalized network. You have uh, YouTube, which is more the video platform. You've got tw TikTok, which is a different kind. So number one, that's just the way these markets work. And the idea that somehow you would use structural antitrust policy to change that, to me, is problematic. Secondly, how many of you pay for uh, your Google searches? Anybody? No. Uh, these are free. These are free. And so normally what antitrust policy looks at is they look at evidence of monopoly to rent-seeking for consumer harm through higher prices. These companies are providing these amazing things. Eric Brynolfsson at Stanford has done these studies. How much would you pay to give up Google Maps? And it's like 150 bucks a year. How much would you? you know. So the consumer value, what's called the consumer surplus, is very, very high with these things. So I'm like, wow. The other thing about these is I, I totally agree that there are some industries maybe where there's too much concentration and you have rent-seeking monopolists who get lazy. The five top American tech companies investing are, invest more in R&D every year than the entire UK economy. Five companies. So they're not sitting with their profits and going, oh yeah, we're gonna, what they're doing with their profits is they're investing in the next thing. Why are they investing in the next thing? Because they know they could die at any moment. So look at Facebook. Two years ago, everybody, oh, Facebook's dominant. And who thinks Facebook is dominant today? Facebook has had some real problems and some real challenges they're facing. Who thinks Google's dominant? Well, I was talking to Microsoft last week and they rolled out you know, the latest chat GPT on, on, on that, on Bing. So there is, I think, Schumpeterian risk of creative destruction in, in this space. Last thing I'll say is, um, oh, I have to say also uh, with uh, Cambridge Analytica, the problem there was Cambridge Analytica. That's the problem. It's not Facebook. You know, and by the way, just to remember, on, uh, Europe has this thing called the GDPR. Well, Cambridge Analytica was subject to the GDPR when they did this terrible, stupid, awful thing. So here we are saying we need regulations. Well, you have this really strong, overly strong regulatory regime in, in Europe, and it didn't work. And then lastly, I'll just say on the diapers.com, there's a piece that my colleague and I wrote on, um, th th a lot of this all came, by the way, from this woman called Lena Kahn, who is now head of the Federal Trade Commission, and she was a Yale law student, and she wrote a Yale uh, Law Review article, which everybody thinks, oh my God, Yale Law Review. Well, it's only by students, so let's remember that. It wasn't like a real law review article that a real antitrust attorney or lawyer would do so. She was a student when she wrote it, and she wrote the Amazon pa paradox, a antitrust Amazon paradox. And so we did an analysis of that. And when you go in in detail, look at all of her assertions about what Amazon did, including diapers.com, it doesn't hold up for scrutiny. The diapers.com, the, the amount of market share that Amazon had in diapers was minuscule. It was less than 8%, I believe. So there was no market power when they, when they did that thing with, with it wasn't even diapers.com, it was some other name of the company. So 
what I would argue we need to do in antitrust when it comes to platforms, and I would add one other thing. I think platforms are a really important business model or organizational model, just like the rise of the industrial corporation that Alfred Chandler talked about uh, during the beginning of the 19th, 20th century. I think what we should be focused on is anti-competitive behavior. If Amazon or some other company are doing something that's purely anti-competitive, yeah, let's go after them. But selling their own batteries, um, having a really great logistics system, I, I, I just don't see what the consumer harm is from there. And I, yeah. Would you like a Reddit reply, Andrew? Yeah, that'd be fun. So it's, uh, as you said, Rob, we were agreeing way too much. So this is, uh, this is good. Um, I, I would push back slightly on the Brynjolfsson figures and the suggestion that that captures everything, all, everything of value. Um, if you ask uh, poker machine addicts how much you would have to pay to stop playing the pokies, they'll give you large numbers, but that doesn't tell you that the social value of poker machines is very high. Uh, in the period since smartphones and social media came out, uh, we've seen a substantial worsening in youth mental health. Uh, Jonathan Haidt's work, uh, which looks at self-harm, at, uh, at, at suicide, at body image from American teens, uh, suggests that the period since 2007 to 2009 uh, has coincided with a significant worsening. We've also seen the same trends here in Australia. Uh, and so the distraction economy uh, has, uh, has served to uh, make it more difficult for many workers to uh, stay focused on their task because there is this amazingly exciting addictive machine, uh, sort of the, uh, the virtual slot machine sitting next to you, uh, and, uh, and that can drag you away from either working or in-person socialising. So we've seen it uh, coincide with the decline in in-person socialising. I don't think it's a coincidence that over this period, uh, young uh, teens around the, in advanced countries around the world um, are less likely to have in-person conversations, less likely to go on dates, less likely to have a job, uh, less likely to have a driver's licence. Uh, the so-called backseat generation has coincided with the rise of these, uh, these technologies. What has it done to politics? Well, I think it's fairly clear that Donald Trump wouldn't have become president uh, if Facebook and Twitter didn't exist. And I think it's very clear that uh, he is now one of the, uh, the front runners for winning the presidential election in 2024. And if these platforms didn't exist, that would be much less likely. Political disinformation is, is spread largely through social media. So when we're thinking about the, the very real benefits that these platforms deliver, you know, linking up diverse communities, uh, allowing people who are uncomfortable with face-to-face -face interactions to have their say, we also want to put on the scales the significant harm to youth mental health and to the political system. Uh, in terms of acquisitions, I mean the uh, uh, Instagram acquisition did represent uh, Facebook uh, promising not to merge the, uh, the uh, back of house operations but ultimately going ahead and, and using its market power uh, to turn that into a, a behemoth which crowded out another potential competitor. And the pace of acquisitions is, uh, is remarkably high. Uh, so dialing back the acquisitions, uh, I think, would be a useful way of ensuring that consumers had uh, a little bit more choice. Can we, can we
we can just spend the rest of the night on this because we can just go <laughs> keep going. So, Depends if, if May gives us permission. Um, do, you, do you want a few minutes? And then I wanted to ask a question about innovation and then we might right. open so, up to the room. A couple things. One, we have to, there, there are different debates in, this, in, in, the, in the IT tech internet world. And, and one debate is about social platforms. So Amazon's not really a social platform. They're a buying platform. Um, so some, so, so I, don't, I don't think that's an antitrust issue. I, you know, if we broke up the major social platforms into five companies each, all this would be way worse, way worse. Because you would have companies who would be, you know what, I love hard right Nazi, neo-Nazi stuff. Come on. The bigger platforms, they, they at least have to sort of address, they have to sort of serve everybody in a way, so they have to kind of go down the middle of the road. Um, and I'm not saying they're perfect, but I also think this is super hard. I'm, I'm actually, I was asked to be on the, um, the Content Advisory Commission for, for Twitter, uh, for TikTok, sorry, which is a great group of folks who know way more than I do. And I gotta tell you, the meetings we're in, it's like, they think really, really hard. What are we dealing, dealing with with this body image issue? Or this? So the question then is, I don't know what you do about those questions other than ban this technology, because my impression of the, is these companies are really, really working on this question. They know there's social, there's, there's drug issues, there's body image issues, there's sexism issues, there's all of that, and they are really, really working hard on it. Secondly, um, the WhatsApp thing. I don't know how many people remember before, before Facebook uh, took over or bought up WhatsApp, uh, you had to pay for WhatsApp. It was a monthly subscription to pay for it, and it had very few users, so you couldn't really use it with that many people. Now it has gazillion users and it's totally free. I've been on business trips all over the world and I go on WhatsApp and I have a free video call with my daughter who's a teenager. Free video call from around the world. And like, so to me, hey, buy them up, man. I don't, that's beautiful. Um, the other thing is, I, I think that the real reason for, um, the real reason for all of this stuff is uh, for this, political bifurcation. I, I hope you're not saying, by the way, the Russian stuff, because I, that to me, there was no evidence that the, the Russian collusion influenced the election. And I just don't, I think that was a myth. That's not to say there isn't a lot of misinformation and, and, and sort of weird stuff on that, but you really want to know where this came from. Go look at MSN and Fox News. I mean, the, the bifurcation of U.S. politics isn't from social media. Social media is reflecting the bifurcation. The bifurcation happened with Rush Limbaugh and then the counter super left networks. So we have, the US suffers from this like incredible political conflict, but it, social media didn't cause it in my view. It helped maybe amplify it, but it didn't cause it. Uh, so again, and then the last thing I just say is, what's the solution? La very last thing. When you look at that Facebook study that, that where 20% of uh, teens, I think it might have been girls, had problems with image because of that, what, it didn't re what, what the media didn't report is they found that 50% of the teens felt better about it. They felt better about themselves. And one of the reasons they felt better about themselves is we all remember when we were a teenager, we all think we're freaks and nobody knows anything, is they could find people on, on Facebook who had similar attitudes or similar views and, and they could communicate with them and they could feel better about them. They're, they're not the only one who's maybe questioning their sexual identity. So, Andrew, I'm not saying that we should sit back and everything's, you know, nirvana. I think these are super hard questions and um, 
we should collectively think about how to make them better. But I'm not sort of, uh, to me, the net plus of social media is so much vastly overweighs the, the harms. So that would be my, my take. When does the, um, <laughs> the next report from the ACCC come out, the, the digital services? I think the last one was received by government this March. Is that correct? Yes, I, I'm not aware of what the timetable is for uh, releasing further, further reports. I think we might leave that, uh, those tensions there and take, take, um, take questions from the audience. John. I think the big yard out of that is Andrew Lee's conversion to small C conservatism, but we'll leave that to one side on his social media riff. Um, my question is about a concept, and I'm trying to, I guess, again, maybe engender a bit of disagreement. Is international competitiveness a useful concept? I'm conscious that 30, almost 30 years ago, Paul Krugman with impeccable progressive credentials said it was a dangerous concept, or was that effect, in foreign affairs. So I guess the elephant in the room being China, is international competitiveness a useful concept? Please discuss. I think it's a fabulous concept for sport, uh, where there is only one gold medal in every event, and some, uh, your competitor nation doing better means your chance of winning gold goes down. Uh, but when we're talking about economic prosperity, in general, the success of other countries benefits you. So when French uh, pharmaceutical entrepreneurs uh, develop a, a better treatment for an Australian uh, disease, then we benefit from that, uh, from that growth. Uh, clearly, if you're talking about military contestation, then you're in a realm that looks a little bit more like sport. You know, typically wars only have uh, one, one winner. Uh, but in the area where, you, in areas where you can have technology transfer, there's huge benefits to productivity rising in other countries. Uh, Australia wants US productivity to go up. Uh, we benefited massively from COVID vaccines being developed overseas and uh, uh, there's no sense in which we were losers because their vaccine uh, was proved to be a successful cure for COVID where the Australian vaccine gave false positives for HIV. Uh, Australia is a, is a beneficiary in, in most contexts. So, you know, in general, I fall on the Krugman side of the debate, uh, although you can identify uh, exceptions to that rule. Good, we get to disagree again. Uh, I would not call Paul Krugman's credentials impeccable. I would call his ideology impeccable. Um, look, the reality, is, and, and part of the reason, Andrew's right, in my opinion, I agree with Andrew on certain things, certain part of this, is you have to think about economies divided into two components. There's the traded sector and the non-traded sector. So we're better off if Australian non-traded sector gets higher productivity because we can sell more to you and, and it raises global income. So for countries, you're like, yeah, you, you fundamentally want your non-traded sector, your garbage collection, your, uh, your banks, uh, you know, your things like that, your government services. You're not competing with the Chinese on that. But then there's the traded sector. And I fundamentally, what country, if you look at sort of, you know, uh, if you look at uh, realist foreign policy versus idealist foreign policy, in, in the realist foreign policy, economic policy, is that countries are in a, in a race to kill each other. Okay, so China wants to destroy our industries. 
That is their goal. They don't want to have sort of, oh, well, you guys invent this, you want that. They want to take over the uh, civil aviation market, Boeing and Airbus. They've already taken over the solar panel market. They want to take, they've taken over a lot of the market in 5G equipment. So we're just, we got to acknowledge, we're just straight up in a competition. Somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. There's only a limited amount, and there's a report we did recently called the Hamilton Index of Advanced Industry Competitiveness. There's only a certain amount of trillions of dollars of probably $8 trillion of global output of advanced industries. Countries are in competition for whether you want that or not, because it's not going up to $20 trillion. It's might It'll grow gradually, but there's $8 trillion of stuff to be competed over electric vehicle production. And the question I think every country has to ask is, do you want any of that? And if you don't, other countries are more than happy to take it. So I completely think countries are in competition with each other. And the most important part of that is we should not allow countries to cheat in that competition. So I used to play basketball and, and I, you know, I, I, you know, we had a team and we were super competitive, but we never played against a team that had brass knuckles and was paying off the ref. And that's what China is. And so I think fair competition between countries spurs us to do better. It makes us all work harder. Unfair competition with China is like brass knuckles. And so absolutely countries are in competition for their traded sector, particularly their higher value added traded sectors, in my view. I think you're just down here. Thank you. Uh, that's on. Uh, Jenny Gordon, ANU. Um, Really interesting. I think the only one who wins from uh, wars are the defence material industries, so uh, that's the winner. Um, now, I've got a question. I was listening to Future Tense today, and they were talking about um, R&D, particularly digital R&D, but also just R&D generally, and where the productivity, you know, Moore's law is proving to kind of kill, still hold, but they're saying that the investment that's going in has risen dramatically, 16-fold to get the sort of what we had in the past. And so do you see, you know, that we're on diminishing returns in these sort of digital technology areas because we're still not seeing productivity gains that we thought we'd see from it? Um, so it's, it's Robert Gordon versus uh, some of the others who are sort of the tech, the tech enthusiasts versus Gordon who said, we've done it all, we don't have big gains lying on the table. So I'd love to get your views. So GPT doesn't stand for general purpose technology, but it could because uh, this is a classic example of a technology which has great potential once it is integrated into the economy. And as you know very well, Jenny, if you look at uh, the steam engine, the productivity gains don't flow for the better part of half a century. If you look at electrification, it takes a while before factories are rejigged to take advantage of uh, electrification. If you look at computerisation, the initial uses of computers uh, look farcical in retrospect uh, until offices are remodelled to take advantage of computers. And artificial intelligence could well be something like that. In the short term, a kind of curio, and we wonder how we, uh, we integrate it into the economy. In the long run, outperforming expectations. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic that that will uh, uh, change and shift and uh, provide more opportunities. And I think when you envisage general purpose technologies, it should also make you sceptical of anyone who tells you that there is some fixed budget of technological innovation to be done in the world. Technological innovation, I think, opens up the possibility that actually the, the world's industrial base 
can be larger and can be very different over decades to come. So I think there is pretty clear evidence that it is harder to extract from nature insights and actionable things than it was in the past. There was a lot more low-hanging fruit. Um, I think one of the studies you're referring to is uh, Nick Bloom and, and his colleagues that found 70 engineers today to get one advancement in Moore's Law that you'd need one back then. I think that's true, and I, and I think that is one of the reasons why innovation is harder than it was. It's like, it's really hard to do, so. I mean, look at drug development. Actually, drug development was really easy, not easy, but was going on, and then it went in this dip, and now, what's interesting in drug development is you have this confluence of, of big data AI analytics uh, for drug uh, development, you have nanotechnology, um, and you have, uh, um, uh, genomics together, and those three seem to be making it making it come up on this. So, I think it's a combination of kind of these new technologies that are emerging. Are they going to overcome just the difficulty of extracting insights out of nature? So, I'm generally an optimist. I mean, I've been an optimist my whole life. I, I think the you know when everybody says, "Oh, you know, my kid's not going to live a better life than I am," I'm like, no way. That would imply negative productivity growth, which the world has never seen negative productivity growth over a longer period than one or two years. And so um, I'm kind of with Andrew. I think one of the things is, if you look at a lot of the technologies today, there, there's a famous uh, line by Bob Solo, Robert Solo. We see computers everywhere, but in the productivity statistics, he said this in 1989. You're, you might not be old enough if you remember what your computer was in 1989. It was a piece of trash. Yeah, it, was a, it was a piece of trash. It, it wasn't connected to the internet. I had, when I wrote my dissertation, I had two floppy drives because I couldn't afford a hard drive. It was like too much money for me. Mm. You know, computers got, and the internet, and so we did have this big productivity advance from like 95 to 2006, 2007. So I think these technologies like robotics and AI and, and um, vision, they're getting better and better and better, but it, people think they're so enamored, like, oh, wow, I can go on TikTok and you can see people who have their facial image changed, you know, like, oh, wow. And we all get enamored, but it's still, it's a ways to go, I think, before this tech, you know, we've got another five, six years to go, maybe, I don't know how many, but at some point, the technology will be so good that it'll be, it, it will have GPT characteristics, I think, and it doesn't quite yet, I think. So, but I would encourage us to just keep working at it and keep pushing it, and I think it'll get there. I think we had a question in the middle there. Hi, Paul Davies from Adam. Um, firstly, thanks very much for your kind words about multinationals. Um, but I have a question more about um, the debate that's started up in the United States about um, sort of fundamentally decoupling the United States economy from China, um, particularly because you've written a bit about some of the dangers of innovation and mercantilism. Um, but I was just wondering, um, if for those, you know, in, in Australia where our debate about um, engagement with China is sort of fundamentally different, um, what you can say about, you know, the, the risks of, well, both how do we balance the risks of um, having China as part of a technology stack, um, particularly in terms of IP, theft and cyber security versus um, the downside risks of not being um, able to access technologies or not choosing not to access technologies that are competitively priced. Yeah, so I think that 
It, one of the things that China wants, is, so the, the old model was you were going to be a military hegemon. And, you know, I don't, I don't know enough about military. You know, they're, certainly they're building up their defense capabilities super quick. But I think what China wants is they want to be the global economic and technology hegemon. They, they want to be able to, they want the, the yuan or the RMB to be the dominant currency. They want all their technologies to be the dominant technologies. And I think that would be bad for the world. I just do. I, I don't think we want China calling the shots. And so part of the whole notion of decoupling is how do you do things in a way that limit China's rise and slow it down and at the same time help speed us up. So that, there are people in the U.S. who argue that we should have, you know, we should tell Kentucky Fried Chicken no more restaurants in China. You know, it's like, what does that have to do with anything? So I think the argument should be we need to be thinking about decoupling from a U.S. perspective with China on things that where we benefit and don't get hurt. So there are people who argue in the U.S. we should not sell them sort of commodity computer chips because we want to decouple. Absolutely, we should sell them as much as possible because every dollar that we get from China is a dollar that our firms get to reinvest in R&D and production and a dollar less that their firms get. So I think we don't want to decouple. I think what we probably, what we should do is we should be thinking about a sort of gradual, slightly faster than gradual second sourcing program, which is why I think we should really be focused on India India would be, we, we need India to be the new China for manufacturing. I think that would be better for everybody. Um, and then we need to be thinking carefully about what kinds of lim limits we have on tech transfer to China. One of the problems is that China puts a gun to companies' heads. You know, if you want Chinese access market, you got to give us your technology. And the reason they're able to do that is because of their monopsony power. You should bring your antitrust case against the Chinese. They're monopsonist, and they can do that. And so I think that's where the West or the allies have to come together and confront that collectively and say, we are not going to allow that to happen anymore. So it's a very difficult conversation in the U.S. because we're sort of early on, and there's lots of emotional voices going back and forth at each other. But there's a lot of people in the U.S. who I think are thinking pretty carefully and strategically about it. So I'm not super... There'll be you know, a few things here and there that bounce, like banning TikTok. It's like, that's the best you got? I mean, really? You think TikTok is a national security? I would be much more worried about civil military fusion than I would be about something like TikTok, so. I'll just make a, just a quick point on China. Uh, I mean, I think it is always important that we distinguish the Chinese people from the Chinese leadership uh, from the Chinese Australians, because there is a sense in which uh, in these conversations, using China shorthand can take away from the billion people, uh, the benefit to a billion people of rapid, rapid economic growth uh, and the ability to, to move hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And the desire among many people in uh, many Chinese citizens to have more personal freedoms than they do at the moment. Uh, I also would like to see. Uh, a United States which is a little more self-confident about its standing in the world. Uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis China, the United States massively dominates in soft power. There is no Chinese equivalent of Hollywood. Um, it dominates in a military sphere. It dominates in terms of friends and allies around the world. Uh, and if US-China policy could embody a little bit more of that self-confidence rather than a sort of timidity that the world is about to fall apart, 
I think we'd all be better for it. I mean, there seems to be a growing well, tension there. First of all, I think, so I, I've, you know, I've advised, and not, I, I say it's the wrong word, I've had lots of Chinese government delegations, CCP, to be clear, delegations come through and they want to talk. And I tell them the same thing every time, which is, if you really want to grow your economy, the way to do it is not what you're doing. So they were spending trillions of dollars to advance these high value added sectors. And when you look at, won't go through the boring details of look at how much productivity they'd gain from it, it's minuscule. They would be much better off through some of the stuff where you, know, you, you increase uh, expenditures by the middle class, you get higher productivity in your agricultural sector, in your logistics sector, all this stuff. Sort of going back to this Krugman thing, thinking about their non-traded sector. So, what I worry about with China is I have no desire to limit the Chinese people's growth. I think what they're doing now is, is intentionally limiting the Chinese people's growth. Xi Jinping doesn't fundamentally care about the Chinese people's well-being. He cares about their power, the, his power and the CCP's power. So I think we should be telling the Chinese economy, the Chinese leadership, that you're not really trying, you're not helping your, your population get a better standard of living. They would have a much higher standard of living now if they hadn't done all this stuff. I was talking to a high-level Chinese official at the NDRC one time, and he was telling me about, um, he goes, Rob, we have, we have these tragedies in China. And I said, well, what do you mean? I'm thinking earthquakes or something. You know, no, 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 right before, um, the DVD player came out, we invested billions of dollars in VCR factories, and we wrote most of it off. And that was a tragedy. I call that sort of, yeah, it was a tragedy, sort of stupid. I mean, don't call it, call it what it was. It was kind of dumb. So you take all that money that they could have put into healthcare, they could have put into education, and they just wasted it. And they waste so much money. I mean, you look at all, all these semiconductor execs that were going to jail because they just blew through 20, 30, 40, 50 billion dollars. So I don't think the Chinese, the Chinese leadership is, is really trying to help the Chinese people. I think they're trying to gain power technologically. So we should all be saying that, because uh, I, I agree, Andrew, that it can come across sometimes as looking like we're against the Chinese people and the advancement of the Chinese people. Ultimately, there, there was a wonderful foreign affairs or foreign policy study a few years ago that said when you, and I, we shouldn't overstate it, but it was like when you get to some level of like 13,000, Mike, you know, there's 13 or 14,000 in per capita income, you sort of switch over to be a democracy. That's what Japan did in the, after World War II, it was what Korea did in whatever the 60s, Taiwan. So at one level, China's going to get rich enough where they're going to go, we don't want this anymore. And so I think the Communist Party knows that. The question is, can you avoid all these problematic things in that period when they're rich and powerful, but aren't rich enough to have democracy? So, but I agree, the, the whole, look, my daughter is adopted from China, so I'm sensitive to this issue. But I also think it's important to make it clear that, you know, we're not, this is not an anti-Asian policy. We're not against the Taiwanese. We want to have partnerships with the Taiwanese, with the Koreans, with the Indians, with the Japanese. It really is about a particular country that's doing things that are against the interests of the West. Thanks. We've got a question at the back. Hello, um, Helen Mitchell from uh, ANU, Australian National University. So I had a question. I was interested in your views on um, what kind or what type of innovation you think that the US might 
want to incentivise or not. So I'm not just talking here necessarily about um, subsidies. That's very topical at the moment. I mean, for example, you know, migration policy settings um, can influence some of the innovations that are incentivised. I'm thinking here um, about Rob's points about labour saving automation, for example, um, becomes more of a commercial imperative when migration settings, you know, are sort of maintained rather than opened up, right? Lo you know, lower skilled labour flows coming in and disincentivising that type of innovation at the expense of other types. Or, for example, maybe more on the subsidies side, um, you know, Chris Miller's insight that you just read his book, Andrew, um, that, you know, the US has tended to do well on the sort of the big science innovations, um, but potentially at the expense of some of the manufacturing and more the sort of engineering type innovations. Um, so I'm just interested in if you, if you do have any views on what the US might want to be focusing on in terms of um, types of innovations. This is based on the assumptions that they're not just kind of, it's not just a way that inexorably flows without it being shaped by government intervention. So I hope I quite got your question. I think the US tends to be good at science-based innovation and we tend to not be as good at engineering-based innovation. So not to have these broad generalizations of national innovation systems, but the Germans and the Japanese are much better at engineering-based innovation than we are, and the Chinese are better at engineering-based, or good at engineering-based So I think one of the big challenges for the U.S. is how do we beef up engineering-based innovation? And that was a lot of what the Chips and Science Act was about and some of these other things is how can we, I mean, there's this notion in the U.S., you know, we, we invent these things and then they go offshore to be built. And finally in the U.S., the elite class and, Policymakers have understood that that really is not sustainable anymore. That we have to, not that we have to build everything in America, we shouldn't want to have that. That's not the right goal. So, I do think that's one. Um, I think the, your, the issue about immig uh, immigration and, and, and low wage labor and automation, I think the Democratic Party, they just want more low wage immigration. They don't care, illegal, legal, not a big deal to them. Uh, they think they're eventually going to be Democratic voters. The business class in the Republican Party wants more, particularly the small businesses and the depends, they want more illegal, they want more immigration because it's cheap workers for them. It's really only sort of now this Trumpian wing of the Republican Party, which is much bigger on immigration. It's now dominant in the Republican Party that wants to limit immigration. Um, but if you sort of tied it to automation, I think there just isn't, there's, there, there's, a, there's a really good economist in, in, in um, he used to be an economist with the Bank of Toronto, Toronto Dominion Bank, I think, and, and, he, and he, um, he uses this word that productivity is like Voldemort. It's the word that cannot be named. And so I don't know if that's true in Australian politics, but you, you never hear the word productivity in American politics. You just never hear it. And uh, it's always about innovation or competitiveness, but never about productivity. So it's hard to... It's hard to imagine our politics kind of where you could have a presidential candidate say, you know, our productivity is terrible. We need to figure out how to automate. It's just people don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. So, which is, I think, a big mistake, obviously. Yeah, Helen, I think it's a, a great question and certainly goes to uh, the extent to which governments are able to identify sectors of the future. Uh, the track record of picking winners is, is not great for, uh, for most countries around the world. And so my general philosophy as an economist is you're better to focus on general skills. 
broad-based education which allows people to continue to learn on the job, uh, opportunities for entrepreneurs right, ac right across the spectrum, uh, ecosystems that encourage startups but without identifying the particular sort of narrow form of startups. Uh, and then you want to uh, allow your manufacturing to be in areas where you've got a strong comparative advantage. You know, Rob spoke before about Chinese uh, production of solar panels. Uh, that has been uh, the, the rapid drop in the price of solar panels has been an important part of carbon abatement across advanced countries around the world. Uh, so, you know, there is, if, if we were to cut off all imports of Chinese-made electric vehicles, cut off imports of Chinese-made solar panels, we would get less carbon abatement in Australia uh, than if we take advantage of, uh, of those lower-priced lower manufacturing goods. Uh, clearly, countries want to look at niches, uh, but in the context of Australia and the US, uh, I think uh, the US benefits when the tradable sector in Australia becomes more productive. So if our wool sector was to become twice as productive tomorrow, uh, that would be a direct benefit to uh, American consumers right there, uh, as well as consumers around the world. Uh, at the same time, it would potentially take away jobs uh, in other countries' wool-growing sectors, um, such, a, such as New Zealand. But the world as a whole would benefit from a productivity improvement in a tradable sector of the Australian economy. I'm just very quickly, we would love Australia to improve their wool productivity because we would be happy to have Australia make wool and you buy all our advanced stuff and we buy your wool. So I do think it's important if you want to go up the value chain, it becomes competition. I, I also think um, for a country like Australia, I, I agree with Andrew, because you, you, you don't know what you're going to do. But for the US, we are so big. We know there are technologies we cannot lose. We cannot, like if you're Denmark, you're not going to make everything. So you're like, yeah, OK, we happen to be good at things. US has to be good at a whole suite of things. We, have, we cannot lose aerospace capability. We cannot lose computing and chip capability. We cannot lose biotech capability. We can't lose quantum. And so in the Chips and Science Act, there's ten there are 10 technologies that are identified as key areas that we want to, batteries is another one, and materials. So I think the, where I would maybe build on what Andrew said is government shouldn't pick individual narrow technology. Like there's a big debate now about is it going to be lithium or there's a new technology called lithium air. <clears throat> Who the heck knows? Government can't know that. But what governments can know is <clears throat> the battery technology. Battery technology is a critical technology for the U.S. to be able to have some competitors in. It shouldn't pick a winning firm. It shouldn't pick a winning technology. But it can pick these broad technologies like AI and bio that we should be good at. Um, I just have, I can't resist on the solar thing because we did a, we did a big study uh, for the for the Smith Richardson Foundation on the effect of Chinese innovation and mercantilist policies on global innovation. Anybody want to guess what year, all the growth of solar panels, what year global <coughs> solar patenting was peaked? It peaked at 2009, the year that Chinese production peaked. So what China did is they put out of business way more innovative solar panel companies, the Germans, the US, and other companies. They destroyed them. US, the China solar panel companies are not innovative. They're innovative in production, cap in process capability. They know how to produce the same solar panel really cheaply. 
But that same solar panel is not good enough to decarbonize the world. We need new innovations like solar flexible things that could go on your office windows where you can cover an entire office with solar, with electrical generating uh, thing. That is a cool innovation. So my point is, I don't think we should, I think we need to be careful with China, that there are certain things China does that look good, but they're actually innovation destroying. Um, so I, I just, you know, to me, maybe China could develop some cool innovation, but if they do it fairly, then I'm more optimistic than it would be good for the world than if they do it unfairly. Like if the market had been working, they wouldn't have destroyed really innovative, high patent solar companies. There would have been a mix and, and that's not the case anymore. Thank you, Rob. Uh, we're running short on time, so we'll just take the final question. Um, hello. Hello, good evening. Um, Miguel Sosset of TG Public Affairs. Um, apologies if this question isn't as high caliber as the previous ones, but um, I just wanted to shift from technology innovation towards the workforce. Um, I just want to get your thoughts on sort of what policies can Australia do to sort of build the workforce that can adapt to the tectonic shifts that, that are obviously that you mentioned with these big um, innovation technology. Um, and you know, so that we have sort of a skill shortage at the moment and sort of the big issues today like AUKUS and are sort of screaming for um, how do we sort of have the right policy settings to attract people to the workforce, especially cybersecurity and the pillar to AUKUS in particular. Thanks. Thank you for bringing up AUKUS. I w wouldn't have been happy if we left without talking about it. Uh, well, thanks, Miguel. And certainly one of the big uh, aspects of AUKUS is the skills training element. And so Brendan O'Connor, the skills minister, was in uh, Adelaide today, along with the defence minister, the foreign minister, and the premier of South Australia, talking about the skills component of AUKUS, which gives you a sense as to how critical that will be. In terms of what we do more broadly, uh, investment in general skills uh, pays off in the over a career better than investment in narrow skills. Uh, David Deming does the best work on this, showing that uh, if you have uh, invest, if, if you get narrow cast education, say in a very narrow apprenticeship field, then you're very likely to find work early on and you earn more in your 20s. But by the time we look to people in their 50s, that narrow set of skills has often become obsolete uh, and people's earnings are tending to flatline. So if you want earnings, you want to maximise earnings over a career, then general skills and learning how to learn really matters. Uh, David Goat takes it further and says, you know, something like uh, a narrow set of scientific skills can pay off in young ages, but the payoffs to humanities and social studies, which are often a framework of thinking that allow people to learn, can be more beneficial over the course of a career. Uh, so we know we're going to need more education as the uh, technologies advance. We should keep that technology, the, uh, the education uh, as broad as possible. Uh, and since this is our last question, Mayor, um, thank you for a wonderful set of questions and a really stimulating discussion. Uh, it takes me back to the uh, halcyon days of summer 2001 at PPI, <laughs> Rob. So I really enjoyed the conversation today. No, I agree. Thank you. It's really enjoyable. I enjoyed your questions. I enjoyed being with you and, of course, enjoyed being with Andrew. So uh, it doesn't seem like 22 years ago. It really doesn't. <laughs> Weird. So thank you. Thank you, Mia. Thank you for coming. Let me, let me just uh, uh, by thanking all of you. It was a terrific discussion, really smart, really respectful, uh, really nice 
dynamic, a nice dialectic, really, made us all smarter. The first, I promise you, of many coming from MIA and the Emerging Technology Program at the U.S. Study Center. Um, the overlaps were greater than the differences in your views. Um, in some ways, the differences in your views may be smaller than the differences within the American debate, uh, as you know. Um, I, I just would um, note a few of them. Uh, I think, Andrew, you're right about the American debate on China right now. The tone is a little too uh, hyperbolic. We should sort of remember Theodore Roosevelt, speak softly but carry a big stick. But Rob is right, too. The Chinese want a bigger stick. <laughs> and it's not just about dominating technology. It's about the fusion of military and, and technology. Um, I was fascinated by the discussion of scale. And I'm glad you started with the two books, which approach that question from a very different perspective, which really is cultural in some ways for the Australian and American uh, perspectives. Um, this has been true for a long time in U.S.-Australia relations. In the early 20th century, Herbert Hoover, future American president, was sent to Western Australia with his Stanford training to use American economies of scale. He was driven out of WA by the Welsh miners. So we don't always agree on these between the U.S. and Australia. Um, we do have to be careful about the divergences, small though they are. Um, I am told, and I think this is accurate, that half of new tech startups in Australia are started by people who got their uh, career trajectory in an American big tech company. And um, so it would be uh, a loss, I think, for Australia if these divergences on things like data localization disincentivize U.S. firms from investing and innovating in this economy, something to be careful about. I think the U.S. has to be careful as well because we don't have market dominance in determining the rules. And uh, there are big differences with us in Europe, uh, much bigger than with Australia. And there are cha chasms with China where data localization is a real, uh, a real problem. So getting these right will be important for both of us. But I think today's discussion is an example of how we kind of get closer to getting it right, not just for the American and Australian economies and societies, but for this whole region of the world. Because if we're not on the same page, we really don't have a prayer. So this was excellent. Thank you all for coming. More to, more to come from Mia. Uh, please join me in thanking an excellent panel.